0: Welcome to Mental Health Cast, a joint production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and Anabaptist World. Today, I invite you to listen in as I speak with Allison Rourke, a social epidemiologist. Her areas of expertise range from HIV prevention, gender-based violence, and the impact of couple and family relationships on health. Allison was previously living in South Africa for five years where she worked as a consultant in public health programs across Sub-Saharan Africa. She is currently an assistant professor at Wheaton College, where she brings her international experience in public health to the classroom. Allison, thank you for joining me today. I'm so glad to be here. Can you tell me what it means to be a social epidemiologist? Yeah,
1: let me start with the epidemiologist part, which people may have more understanding of a year into this pandemic than they did previously, but I think of epidemiologists as being detectives of disease, especially infectious disease, where we're trying to figure out the who, what, where, when, why, and how a disease spread. So those are the big questions for epidemiologists. Some epidemiologists do focus on chronic non-infectious diseases, but I've mostly focused on infectious diseases. And then the social part of a social epidemiologist is really thinking more about what we call social determinants of health. So we're asking the same questions about who's affected, what is the health problem or disease, where are they infected, when, why, and how are they at risk? But we're especially focusing on more what we sometimes call upstream factors, so socioeconomic factors, structural factors that are putting people more at risk of perhaps the more proximal behaviors or determinants of the disease spreading. So if we think about it in terms of the current pandemic, obviously we know people are infected by a virus, but what puts them at risk of encountering that virus and not able to protect themselves? And often those are socioeconomic factors. We see over and over that the most vulnerable in society are always the most vulnerable, whatever the disease we're talking about. And so there's a lot of Structural and kind of bigger factors going on that are impacting people's individual risk. And that's what I'm most interested in as a
0: social epidemiologist. I know you're a new professor at Wheaton this year. How have you incorporated the current pandemic into your teaching? It's
1: actually been really fun. I hate saying there's been a fun side to this pandemic because it's been so devastating on so many levels, but there's never been a better time to make the case for why epidemiology matters and public health matters and how the things we are studying in class actually matter in the real world. So on any given day, I can just open the New York Times or whatever I'm reading that day. And there's almost guaranteed to be a front page article that relates to what we're talking about in class. So that's been really interesting. And I think interesting for my students too. I've gotten a lot of feedback from them that they're just excited about having tools to understand what's happening, understand what we can do about this pandemic and even that it's helped them feel just more empowered and less out of control to know more about what's going on.
0: I think I would really enjoy to be part of your classes this past year. <laughs> As I said, I hate
1: talking about a fun side to this pandemic but it's just on an intellectual level, it's just been really fascinating to watch things unfold and just be reminded how much we don't know. So that detective work I talked about, it's like that's being done in real time. And I'm not saying I'm one of the you know, US or global experts on this, but just to watch my community of epidemiologists just figure this thing out in real time is it's just been really
0: fascinating and it's just made me actually proud of my community and to be part of it. Mm-hmm. How did your faith impact your choice to become an epidemiologist? So in college,
1: I started college with the intention of being a doctor because I knew I cared about health and cared about people not getting sick and dying, which I think is God's heart for people to not get sick and die. Although I want to interject actually an insight I got from another epidemiologist named Michael Osterholm. I read his name in the news sources all the time. He's been cited a lot during this pandemic, but a book he wrote that I read this past year he said, actually, the goal is to replace bad deaths with good deaths. And that really stuck with me, especially as a Christian that we know death is not the end. And in one sense, it's not the enemy. It's something that, you know, God allows. But I think God's intention for people is for them to live long, healthy lives, lives that are flourishing. We can think of the Old Testament concept of shalom, of just peace and well-being and relationships put right and that's what we want for people and hopefully to live long productive peaceful lives and then have non-painful non-premature deaths so as an epidemiologist that's my goal long healthy lives and death when it comes to be good deaths and i certainly have a lot of a lot of colleagues who don't share my faith commitments who have the same goals but i think for me as a christian i I really think that's God's heart. And I'm participating in his work in the world by lessening death and not just death, but all the terrible things that can happen to people's health and really
0: rob their health and their life from them. What has it meant to you to teach at a Christian college? How does it inform your teaching? I have really enjoyed
1: it. And I have to say a year ago, no, I need to go a little further back a year and a half ago, I would not have seen myself here doing this i had worked in secular environments in public health for oh a good 20 years i mean part of that time was was getting a phd but i had really enjoyed my work in in non-christian environments but coming to a christian environment i think i really enjoyed just the integration of my faith and work and for the first time in my professional life i just don't have to censor what i say i can kind of bring my whole self you know my Academic training and my um, work as an epidemiologist, and my faith, and fully integrate them and just talk about them in the same sentences. And I think for most of my career, I've definitely within myself tried to integrate the two and think, you know, what does God say about this? Or how does my faith inspire the work I'm doing? But a lot of what I was thinking and figuring out, it just wouldn't have been appropriate to talk about in my professional context. I love getting to do that here at Wheaton. And I love getting to help students do the same. And what I try to teach them is you know, we're kind of talking about different, sometimes different sources of truth. But it's all one truth. And we need to work to integrate those. And there may be times where there's areas of tension between what we're studying. And what we know the word of God to say. And then we need to work to resolve those tensions because at the end of the day, we're seeking truth, you know, one truth. But there's a lot of truth that epidemiology and science can bring to us as Christians that we can integrate into what we know of God and his world. And that's really good work. I, I have them do, well, my one class I teach is, is called Introduction to Public Health. And in that class, I had students do an exercise at the beginning and end of the semester where I asked them to plot on two different axes that like crossed in the middle. I gave them the top 10 public health issues as defined by the Centers for Disease Control, so everything from HIV to road accidents to alcohol use. And I asked them to plot those 10 issues on these axes of one axis was, is this a moral issue or not? The other axis is, is this about individual choice or not? because those are always questions I'm thinking about in public health. And I don't think there's one right answer for those things. We may, as people answer it differently, but I want them to think about, you know, for choices that people are making, to what degree is it an individual choice and public health hopefully is pushing us to think about all those bigger social and structural factors that sometimes really constrain people's choices and make them not able to make the best choice. And I want them to think about, is this a moral, issue or not because we are moral beings and spiritual beings on the other hand i think sometimes we maybe over spiritualize or moralize as christians in a way that we
0: shouldn't so to me those are just the questions to think through as as christians mm-hmm. so i hear you saying you bring into the classroom this question of what does god think as you yeah. these epidemiology questions what are we looking at the population and thinking about their choices and moralizing them kind of saying like they've brought it upon themselves rather than this is like a a disease based out of the social determinants that they're faced with or because of the situation that they're in they are now facing this disease process
1: yeah yeah i i think that's right and to me often the truth is somewhere in the middle i think for my non-christian colleagues in public health sometimes they get too far away from seeing us as moral beings who make moral choices and everything just becomes about social determinants of health. I do think we're people created by God with agency and choice. And so we need to think about, does that come in? And even to talk about the current pandemic, um, you know, is social distancing a moral issue or not? Is wearing a mask a moral issue or not? And people answer that question in different ways but I think we have to think about that as Christians. And if we really believe All of our lives should fall under the Lordship of Jesus Christ.
0: Even health behaviors like that maybe have a moral dimension that we need to to reckon with. Last year, you were living in South Africa during the 2020 pandemic. And as it unfolded, you were able to watch it from South Africa while it kind of moved from China to Europe to the U.S. Now Africa, I think, is seeing more of it in 2021 than they were in 2020. What did it feel like to kind of watch it cross the globe from your position in South Africa?
1: Yeah, I think the really crazy thing for us is that at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know we were leaving South Africa. And then less than a week later, we were gone. (laughs) We had left South Africa. So things unfolded in a really shocking direction. But I mean, I have to say at the very beginning, I was not tracking the situation in China. Really, I was kind of just as surprised as anyone else that suddenly there was this deadly pandemic coming and I think it hit me maybe a week or two before most people I was talking to that this could be huge and actually change everything about life as we know it and I remember talking to friends in the small group at my church about that kind of a week or two before everybody else realized how big it was and saying well what if this kills one percent of us and people just kind of I don't want to say laughing at me, but just, I think they thought that was a crazy idea. And then for all of us who lived through it, we know that the world just kind of changed day by day during those couple of weeks in March. But for us, we were planning on staying. We had lived there for five years and we were talking about ending our time there and where we might go next, but we weren't ready to make the move yet. So I remember in the beginning, just a couple of realities hitting me of well, we didn't know what the fatality rate was. And I was thinking, you know, is it 1% of those infected 3%, we just didn't know. And I thought that's gonna be catastrophic in a place like South Africa, well, Africa generally, and and South Africa has much better healthcare than just about anywhere else in sub-Saharan Africa. But I've traveled all over Africa and I know how limited the healthcare system really is. And I thought, you know, this is gonna be catastrophic. People will not have respirators or oxygen. And I had, a month or two before ridden on a a train with my son. It was just a commuter rail, but he really wanted to ride on a train. So we'd done this and I had a sense of how kind of crowded those trains were. And in those early days of the pandemic, somebody sent me a picture that maybe their domestic worker had just taken that morning on the commuter train. And I just began to imagine like COVID spreading in an environment like that and thinking, you know, all these workers that they they can't stay home. They you know, are paid for every day they work, they have no safety net. And I actually was making calls to try to find a, a sewing machine for our domestic worker to start sewing masks. And I was ready to start like handing out masks on <laughs> commuter trains. You know, I was just thinking, what can I do? I just felt like I was watching this tsunami of death quite honestly approaching and thinking, what can I do to stop this? And then within a couple of days, we started to think, you know, maybe we're not called to stay. And my husband had a really, I think, key and important insight that he he just said, you know, if we stay and we need a respirator, we're taking one away from a South African who needs it too. And we started to realize our time there was done, and we actually couldn't defend staying anymore. And so we packed up two suitcases apiece and my family of four, and we're on a plane less than three days later after that decision. And. A couple hours out of the Cape Town airport, we had Wi-Fi on the plane and I started getting messages from friends in South Africa that the president had just declared one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, actually, that was to start three days from then. And so we left on a Monday and Thursday ended up being the last flight out of the country. And had we stayed, we would have, well, been there for months and months because we wouldn't have been able to get out of the country. So I think God was good to direct our steps there. And I was just so relieved that the government of South Africa was taking that kind of strong leadership to declare this really very proactive, very restrictive lockdown that I think at the time was absolutely necessary. And so they didn't need do-gooders like me trying to sew and hand out masks. They were actually coming up with, with laws to check their own people. And yeah, within a month, or I'm sure within a week, you could, you know, buy a mask (laughs) anywhere in the country easily. Yeah, I was just so impressed watching South Africa's response and actually contrasting it to the US where I felt like our national leadership was so much less proactive and just less public health minded. It was crazy to suddenly leave that environment, be back in the US where things are just so different in terms of people's privilege and resources and ability to social distance, to work from home. And my heart has continued to break over just the terrible choices being faced by the government of South Africa, government of India. I mean, any low resource country that is having to decide between controlling a deadly disease and the health, welfare, well-being of their citizens. And in South Africa, I had on Saturday mornings volunteered at a kids bible club in a township there and by township I mean an informal urban settlement with no running water no electricity I'm sorry there were communal taps but houses don't have their own running water and so the whole pandemic I've just been thinking of the children there that I would teach the bible to on Saturday mornings and what lockdown looked like for them just being trapped in a very small um house I mean shack you know very poor housing and not having the means for good hygiene, being out of school with parents who are working day to day, you know, with with no savings. And I think just the human toll has been just catastrophic in terms of poverty and, and nutrition and livelihoods and all these other things we're also very concerned about from a public health point of view. So I don't have the answers there. I think it has been terrible decisions that the president of South Africa and other, other leadership in the global South has had to make, they've just had to make really
0: impossible decisions. And I just applaud them doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. We're heading towards summer now and vaccine rollout is in full swing. It seems like COVID is much improved here in the States. I got a reminder today that in Maryland, the infection rate is the best it's been since a year ago, which is just amazing. Yeah. Yes. But we keep hearing about tragic stories, as you just mentioned, um, especially in India, people dying in the streets, limited oxygen, yeah. limited ventilators. Why do you think this is happening a year out? I think India thought it was kind of over this wave of, yeah. of COVID. And now it's blossoming 15 months, 60 months, a year and a half after COVID had started. Yeah. Do you have a sense of that?
1: Yeah, in answering these questions, I wish I were a virologist and had more to say about viruses. And I'm not except to say that they mutate. And I think we just have to expect surprises. They're a living organism and we don't have a crystal ball t- to know where, where viral mutations are leading. And India is such an interesting case to me. I mean, I've just been absolutely haunted and heartbroken over what's been happening there in the last few weeks. I taught a course that just finished on pandemics. It was called Pandemics, Ancient and Modern. So we went all the way back to Middle Ages and and the plague. And I learned so much about just the death toll of pandemics through the ages that was horrifying. But we ended talking about the current pandemic. And when I was designing the course in January, I assigned a couple of readings about India that were about balancing the same kind of terrible calculations I was talking about of controlling this deadly epidemic and protecting people's health livelihoods, you know, making sure they don't starve and children are in school and all those other things. And so these articles I assigned were quite critical of the pretty strict lockdown that India had instituted earlier in the pandemic, because there's just this huge human told you it. And these authors were asking, was it really necessary And in public health, we often don't get to see the counterfactual, right? We make decisions and we don't know what would have happened had a certain course of action not taken place. And so I had put these readings about India on the syllabus. And then it was so ironic because the week we ended up reading those, the pandemic was just exploding in India and we were actually seeing the counterfactual. Like this is what can happen in this environment in the absence of strict infection control measures. So I still don't have answers there really for how to balance those two you know competing needs except to say that it's been a just horrible horrible situation and we've seen the pandemic isn't isn't over and really our best tools against it obviously vaccines but also just the same kind of centuries old infection control methods that we've had the whole time of just isolation and wearing masks yeah i think those are still very much needed, especially in environments like India
0: that that aren't
1: close to being fully vaccinated yet. Mm-hmm.
0: It seems that vaccination status has rapidly changed what people can and cannot do. For example, going unmasked, socializing with other vaccinated persons. I am concerned as I think about people gathering that loosening these restrictions for vaccinated folks will make it harder for those who have chosen to postpone vaccination to abide by recommendations to continue to social distancing and mask wearing. Any any epidemiological thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah, I
1: agree with you that it's going to be really hard to enforce this. And I think, you know, CDC just announced this new policy about vaccinated people not needing masks in most settings just announced that less than a week ago. And so we still haven't really seen it play out. I mean, I, I went back to church in person this last Sunday for the first time in many, many, many months. I mean, I think I had gone twice to church in person and since the pandemic started and that was beginning of last fall. And so now that I'm fully vaccinated, I finally feel safe <laughs> and going to church. And there they said, you don't have to wear masks if you're vaccinated. I went to my daughter's ballet performance later the same day, and we all were masking again, because there is no way to know there who is and isn't. So myself, am going into environments like church and ballet performances that I haven't in over a year, and I feel comfortable with that level of risk. I think in public health, we're always weighing risks, and I would never tell someone that there's zero risk if you're not if you're vaccinated, because we know there are breakout infections, even among people who are vaccinated. Personally, I'm comfortable now taking some of those risks. My mantra the whole time has been just be outside. And I think we have done far too little to promote being outside. And, and I really think there's very, very low risk outside. So coming into summer, that's my main plan, except for things like church and ballet that aren't happening <laughs> inside, but I I just want to stay outside. I do think perhaps in the public health community, we haven't communicated well enough about varying levels of risk, by which I mean, there are lots of activities for which, yes, there is some tiny amount of risk, such as meeting with someone outside, such as being in a certain environment while vaccinated, but it's very low risk. And really, that's not where we need to focus our attention. We need to focus our attention on the remaining really high risk environments, which is restaurants, church, gyms, bars for anybody who's not vaccinated. So in public health, I'm always thinking of the whole population and what levers do we need to pull in the population more so than can we save every last individual from every tiny amount of risk. I'm not so interested (laughs) in individuals and tiny amounts of risk. I'm interested in yeah, at a population level, what levers do we need to pull? And I think the biggest lever we can pull right now is just getting people vaccinated because it is highly, highly effective. And I think in public health, we're just aware of people's fatigue with following rules and, and for a good reason, just being fatigued with isolation, fatigued of, of wearing masks. And so in that sense, I'm glad to see the CDC kind of incentivize getting vaccinated and saying if you can do if you get vaccinated, you can go back to life as normal. And I think that's a good message. And we really want to incentivize people getting
0: vaccinated. My mom was reminding me about the public campaign to be vaccinated against smallpox when she was a youth. And it reminds me a little bit of COVID because I'm sure that there was pushback about it at that time. And yet here we are and I have never ever seen a case of smallpox. I'd just be interested about your Your thoughts on the historical perspective of infectious disease?
1: Yeah, in teaching this course on historical pandemics this spring, I got into a lot of of history that I didn't know. I mean, I knew generally, you know, a third of Europe had died of the plague during the Middle Ages. But reading more about just pandemic after pandemic globally and the huge death tolls and just the mammoth. Human suffering. I mean, smallpox is a good example. It left lifelong scars on people's faces. And before a smallpox vaccine, you know, like half of Europe was going around with disfiguring scars. And I guess it even came up as a theme in novels like, you know, harming women's marriage prospects because their faces were scarred. I mean, it was a huge part of life, actually. And a lot of children did did die during childhood. And we know that life expectancy has essentially doubled in the last 150 years. And most of that has been due to public health measures. I mean, increased hygiene, but also increased vaccine and all the diseases that just killed a large proportion of children, especially, but also adults have been vanquished through vaccines. So I think I'm on pretty solid ground saying we have never effectively controlled an infectious disease a serious infectious disease without a vaccine and of course we see infectious diseases like common colds and flus that we have built immunity over time and one school of thought is this coronavirus may just eventually become part of seasonal flu and not be as deadly so yes our immune systems are doing their jobs to fight these things off but i would say for so many diseases throughout history, actually, our immune systems were not able to fight them off. We just saw huge, huge death tolls until we had vaccines. I heard an interview with Francis Collins, head of the NIH, a couple of weeks ago. It was actually an event here at Wheaton. He was invited to speak along with a couple other Christians just talking about vaccines. And but of course, Francis Collins is, to me as a public health person, just one of my heroes. And just an amazing person of faith. I mean, during the call, he pointed out a whole row of Bible verses just printed out on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, hanging by his desk that he's been reading the whole pandemic. So this is someone who knows God, reads his Bible. And he said he was hoping for vaccine effectiveness of around 70%, which is basically what we're looking at for a successful vaccine for seasonal flu. And when the the effectiveness came back at 95%. He said he just cried. He was just overwhelmed with God's goodness and allowing people and people's brain power and creativity to develop something like this. And I just share his conviction there. I think this is a gift of God. And I think God gifting people with the skills and brain power and expertise to develop this. That's just something to praise God for. And I know so many people working at the front lines of developing vaccines and controlling this pandemic actually are people of God, like Francis Collins and one of the, I think her name is kizmekia Corbett. I hope I'm getting it right, but she's a young African-American scientist. who's a Christian who was at the forefront of the vaccine development initiative as well. And it just makes me proud, honestly, to see members of my public health community
0: and my brothers and sisters in Christ taking on those roles. I really appreciate how you call the vaccine a gift to God. I don't think I've heard that before, but surely instead of wondering if this vaccine was developed too quickly, maybe we need to accept it as the gift that it is. I, as a healthcare provider, I certainly feel it's a gift to yeah. walk into a patient's room who has COVID and not feel the same sense of fear I felt a year ago yeah. and that my yeah. colleagues are protected as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I've realized so much of how people think about the vaccine, I think, reflects how much they trust the scientific community. And I get that, that there are reasons at times to maybe not fully trust the scientific community. I mean, I think part of that comes down to genuine mistakes that have been made among scientists and doctors. I taught this last term on the opioid epidemic and doctors being way too quick to prescribe opioids. And I heard a quote from someone recently, her saying, a woman saying, my son is addicted to opioids and, you know, from the doctors prescribed to him and therefore how can I trust doctors? And I do get that genuine mistakes have been made. And for people like that, that mistrust comes out of that. On the other hand, I think part of the mistrust comes from people just not understanding how the scientific process works. So for instance, different guidance on masks, guidance has changed because what we know has changed and I see science as a constantly self-correcting system that we don't always come to the final answer at the beginning because that's not the way it works but I actually have a lot of confidence in my colleagues at the CDC and just within the public health and scientific community that we're doing the best we can with the evidence we have and I have a lot of confidence in this vaccine because I feel like it's been science, it's been done well the way it should be. But yes, we are learning as we go about this disease and you know, not a single human being on the face of the earth knew it existed 18 months ago. We knew nothing about it. So to me, the, the speed of scientific discovery here is just stunning in a good way. I mean, it's incredible. And the speed at which we developed the vaccine but we are still learning about it. And as the virus evolves, some of our recommendations may change in the next year or two. And to me, that's what science should be, like always willing to interrogate our knowledge, interrogate our answers and change course if need be.
0: I appreciate that idea. We we may be wrong. We have to make the best recommendation we have with the best evidence we have, but that may be wrong and then we will have to change recommendations based off the the evidence. Yeah. Can can you talk a little bit about what herd immunity is?
1: Theoretically, it's having enough people in a population immune to, to an infectious agent, so either through vaccination or through having been infected, that an infectious agent can't spread. So that's what it is in theory. And I think the way we're talking about it in this epidemic I think we're increasingly realizing we're not going to reach that theoretical threshold. Smallpox, we've totally eradicated it. You cannot get smallpox anymore unless somebody releases it as a as a weapon, you know, as a as a biological weapon because there's no one to get it from. So we would love to get to that point with this virus, and we may not. And a couple of weeks ago, New York Times ran an article quoting Fauci and some other national experts on this, saying we may never reach herd immunity, and I was really discouraged to read that. So there's two things going on. One is that the virus mutates, as we've kind of already discussed, and so it's it's a moving target to develop vaccines, and for people who've been infected, if the virus mutates enough, they may be able to become reinfected. The other big factor is just how quickly people are getting vaccinated. And so it's really a race at this point to get people vaccinated faster than the virus mutates and stays ahead of us. And we're facing that same race with a lot of different viral mutations. Well, and, and with bacteria, with antibiotic resistance, it's, it's really similar. Are these pathogens going to mutate faster than we can stay ahead of them with our, our technologies? Listening to Fauci and these other experts, I would say at this point, Yeah, we probably are unlikely to reach this theoretical herd immunity ever where you just can't get this virus anymore. But it's not all or nothing, right? So the more people who are vaccinated, the more we can decrease transmission, the more your risk falls. And I think another really key concept is that all transmission is local. Often a really important insight in public health that sometimes people ask me for national level data. And I think to myself, well, I could give that, but why? Because you know, in this case, like national vaccination rates matter so much less than what vaccination rates are where you live in your state or your community or your county, unless you're flying around the country a lot, really your risk comes from where you live. So I think we are gonna see pockets of greater herd immunity in the country and pockets of less herd immunity. And we've seen that already in this epidemic, just very different
0: waves of the epidemic in very different places. And we can't just talk about a national epidemic. Thinking about your HIV experience, how do you see the COVID pandemic changing healthcare, especially as you see it through the lens that that the HIV pandemic changed healthcare in the last century?
1: Yeah, if it's okay, let me back up a little and just talk about how I kind of see the similarities and differences between HIV and COVID. It was fascinating to me when the pandemic started just to realize, okay, I've never studied a respiratory illness before. You know, I don't study seasonal flu or anything like that. I did work in HIV for a decade and so much of what I knew actually applied. And that was fascinating to realize that there are things that are kind of common to infectious diseases like this. So one of the big ones from my perspective is that there's this period where people are asymptomatic and don't know they're infected. So for HIV, it's seven to 10 years if people don't get tested and don't figure out they're HIV positive, it may be seven to 10 years between infection and starting to show symptoms and they can pass HIV to a lot of other people in that time if they don't know they're infected. We see a similar dynamic here, a much shorter period of time but people can be initially asymptomatic or asymptomatic the entire duration of being infected and so they can't actually take measures to protect those around them. So there's something really, counterintuitive about both infections and how they spread because as people we're wired to think if you're infectious you're symptomatic you know you're you have a fever you're coughing your nose is running and we're kind of hardwired as people to associate those symptoms with being symptomatic and we have to think in a very different way about these diseases HIV was the other big pandemic that's happened in my lifetime so looking at I think I mentioned earlier In our conversation that I have my students do an exercise with the top 10 public health concerns in the U.S., the only two of those that are infectious diseases are HIV and the current pandemic, which actually hasn't even made the top 10 yet because they haven't redone that top 10 list since the pandemic hit. But I I added it in there. It certainly will be, I'm sure, the next time they do the list. So most of our big health threats in the U.S. are chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, or things like opioid abuse, but I think an infectious disease comes along, and then we do have to really change the way we do healthcare. We have to think about infection control measures. With HIV, I've mostly worked in HIV globally, and globally, HIV has had a huge impact because it's been the largest funded disease in the history of the world globally. I mean, talking about um, foreign aid and, you know, money that's sent for international health programs and In other countries, it just dwarfs any other disease that's being funded. And so the the push to prevent it, but also to get people on treatment, we do have good HIV treatment now to roll out testing services. That has all led to strengthening healthcare systems because we had to, we couldn't put large percentages of a population on lifelong treatment without stronger healthcare systems. So I hope that out of this pandemic, we'll see some of the same strengthening of healthcare and public health systems across the board, where I think crises like this kind of force us to see what needed to be fixed anyway, and then we either choose to fix it or we don't. And in my dreams, we would see this as a call to strengthen our US public health system and globally, because I think we've realized a virus like this can break out anywhere in the world, and find its way around the world in a matter of weeks to months, and even controlling the current pandemic, it's not controlled in the world until it's controlled everywhere in the world. I mean, if it continues to rage out of control in India for the next three years, we will just continue to see variants that that threaten us here in the US as well. So I'm hoping this will just be a call to action to strengthen health systems, strengthen public health and do the things we should have done anyway, because we have seen how it matters in terms of the threat of this one particular disease.
0: It seems like the best public health system is probably the system you don't actually know is working.
1: Yeah, we're doing our jobs. No one even notices because we don't have deadly pandemics and people don't die. People don't even think about it. And if they did, they would think, oh, that's what would have happened anyway. So I warn my students of this when they're thinking about going into public health. I warn them and I say, if you become a doctor, you're going to save lives and people are going to recognize you as saving lives. You go into public health, you're also saving lives, but it doesn't get the same recognition because cause and effect is a lot more diffuse for one thing, but also preventing deaths, it's just never going to be recognized in a way that saving someone who was sick already is. But I love public health. I mean, I'm totally committed to it. And I think it's so important to do what we do so that you know, we never have the deadly pandemics and thousands or millions of, of deaths, but it's kind of quiet behind the scene work that if it's going right, nobody really
0: notices. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Allison, for talking with me today. And thank you to all our listeners for joining Mental Health Cast as I spoke with Allison. If you're interested in donating or getting involved with MHS, Please go to our website at menohealth.org and click on the link in the top right corner, or email us at infomhealth.org. We invite you to financially support the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue this dialogue about the intersection of faith and health. If you're interested in telling your story, please email me at info at Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits go to Eugene Stavanis, and I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Please join us again next time.